All right, so, yep, uh, we will go through all three epistles tonight. I didn't want to break them up. There's not a lot to them as far as, you know, volumes and volumes of, of words. Uh, I think they're loaded with uh, good content. Uh, five chapters in 1 John, one chapter in both 2nd and 3rd John. And uh, <clears throat> similar very much with one another. Uh, difficult, I would say, to study sometimes because uh, he's not like Paul. And I really jive with the way Paul does things because he starts with a premise and he, and he works logically to a conclusion. And John, John kind of writes like, oh, oh yeah, and... Oh, yeah, and, and, and this, and oh, this is an important truth. And so outlining John can be uh, a hazardous mess. And so I was glad to read from James Montgomery Boyce that, it's, that that's the case with it, and it's just as legitimate to just go ahead and teach it verse by verse. And uh, so, in fact, Jamie will be teaching this Sunday from 1 John. 1 John, right? And uh, so I'm excited to hear his study. Are you going to try to outline your text? Yeah, see, Boyce says you don't have to, so just teach the text itself. So, so I'm going to use Geyser's uh, uh, outlines for it tonight, and you can judge if they're any good. I think they're okay. Um, he just does some magic with the way that he puts them together. Uh, but I've caught him a few times just putting them together sounding good, and they don't actually represent the text. And that's not a good outline. So I'll take it up with him when I die, because he's with the Lord, with Ravi Zacharias also. In fact, Ravi was the graduate student of Norman Geisler. And so that's, I think, was troubling that Geisler died, and then shortly after, Ravi Zacharias died. So we have lost a lot. Um, we had R.C. Sproul passed a couple years before them. And... Um, yeah, it seems like a lot of guys. MacArthur's getting old. MacArthur is old. So anyway, let's get started. Let's get started. Author John the Apostle. Uh, now, for various reasons, there's been a number of challenges to uh, his authorship, um, uh, none of which I think are convincing, but the arguments against it, uh, against John the Apostle being the author, are these. Uh, none of the letters bear his name. Okay, uh, Second and Third John have the title "The Elder." Okay, that's Second John one one and Third John one one, uh, whom skeptics believe was just a disciple of John, uh, or he was someone else. Um, Ignatius, not Ignatius, Irena, Irenus, however you say that man's name. Uh, he supposedly had um, the manuscripts of a earlier father named Papias. And in there, Papias had said that it was somebody else, uh, but doesn't give us really much information. It's in the 39th chapter of Papias' writings, supposedly. Lastly, uh, the skeptics believe that John was not alive when these letters were written, because they're uh, written late, later than anything else. So in response, uh, the absence of a person's name does not disprove authorship. Okay, it doesn't really say much. Uh, it doesn't mean that it wasn't theirs originally. 
Uh, it could mean that uh, John's audience knew him well enough that uh, the name was unnecessary. Uh, if the letter was written during the time of the, as we believe, the Diocletian persecution of the church, then perhaps John kept his name uh, anonymous as well as the location of the church, as is also the case. We don't exactly know where these people were. Um, we believe that they were the churches surrounding uh, Ephesus, so possibly even the seven churches of Asia, which end up receiving his, uh, the, the, the revelation. That's a possibility. Uh, some say that uh, they were uh, primarily Jewish fellowships. Um, I've read their arguments for it. I don't even think it's worth entertaining, um, or else I would give them to you. Um, and then that John, would, that would, he would call his name an elder or, or identify himself as the elder in 2nd and 3rd John is no surprise because even Peter in 1st Peter 5 verse 1 identifies himself as an elder. And uh, that's not problematic at all. Uh, pastors are elders even though not all elders are pastors. Okay, so that's not a, a big deal. The quotation that's given by uh, Irenaeus from Papias uh, of that writing is actually doubtful, and not many people uh, want to give it that much credit, and because uh, none of the, the actual writings of Papias are in existence today, so there's no way to actually verify the quote. And then there's good evidence that John the Apostle was indeed alive uh, up to 98 A.D. 98 A.D. So, so here's the internal evidence. I think Norman Geiser does a good job of presenting them um, to, to demonstrate that it was an apostle. Okay? Uh, the author claims to be an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, the author speaks with apostolic authority and identity in 1 John 4, 6, in 2 John 1, 4, and verse 8, and then in 3 John, um, of course, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verses 5 through 12. So apostolic authority and identity, okay? Um, he wrote in the same style, vocabulary, and doctrine that we find in the, in the Gospel of John, okay? Um, and so Geisler has this note. He says, who else could write at this time in the same style, vocabulary, and doctrine and have his book accepted and not have his name on it other than... John the Apostle. And then for external evidence, um, in the, the earliest times of the church, they were identified as the epistles of John. That was how the early church identified the letters. Uh, one of John's own disciples, a man that he trained and raised up in the faith, his name is Polycarp. We do have his writings. Uh, he said that 1 John was most definitely uh, John's. And Irenaeus attributes 2 John to him, and then they were accepted by uh, most of the early fathers as the work of John the Apostle. Now, part of the reason that it took time for people to identify them is because they weren't published and then email, emailed out to everyone. Okay? It took time to copy these and then to distribute them throughout the, the churches in the Mediterranean. Of course, the earliest books, like Galatians, and uh, James, uh, those were written early in the 50s, and they had all this time to be collected by the majority of the churches, and 
And so that's why we find most of uh, the epistles in what's called the moratorium uh, canon, which is essentially a Bible. And um, so it just took some of the later ones to be distributed, like the book of Revelation as well. So there are good reasons uh, for some of the, the, uh, the, the later acceptance of the epistles of John and the book of Revelation. What about the date? Um, I, I agree that it's, I could even maybe go back to 85, uh, 295, okay, uh, sometime in there. It was definitely written before 8125. Uh, it's interesting that a fragment of the manuscript of John, 1 John, was found in Egypt, and it carbon dated at 115 to 125 A.D. Uh, that's a very early manuscript, by the way. There's not many manuscripts that are dated quite that early. There's a few earlier, but not many. Uh, obviously, as we've said, it, it was written before John's death. Irenaeus says that he died, he passed away in 98 A.D., so they had to be written before then. Uh, the circumstances and theology in the book indicate that it was probably written sometime during the reign of Domitian. I said Diocletian earlier. Uh, that's not until the 4th century. Uh, Domitian, which his reign was from 81 to 96 AD. So I think that it was written sometime during that era. Um, and then the... Epistles, now this is an argument between scholars. Some people believe that they were written before the gospel and then the gospel uh, clarified the epistles, but then others believe the gospel was written first and then to clarify the teaching of the gospel, that was where the epistles came from. I believe that is the most logical thing. Uh, historically, we've looked at the gospel or the epistles of Paul and uh, uh, Peter and James and John as being commentaries on the Gospels themselves, expanding on the teachings of Christ. And so I have a tendency to just accept that. It seems logical to me that the Gospel would be written and then people over time would say, hey, what about this? Hey, what about that? And then John has an opportunity to explain himself to these churches uh, what was going on in the Gospels more clearly. So, And we, we do the same thing, don't we? We look at the Gospels and we go, what does that mean? And we find a place that Paul or John or James talks about it. And they clarify the doctrines more clearly. So 80, maybe 85 to 95. I've pushed it forward to 90 and 95. Look at a couple uh, special considerations here. Uh, the epistles and the Gospel are the only books written after the destruction of the temple. Uh, which were written in 78, or which happened in 70 AD. Now, some people, uh, I don't believe that they hold the position because of historical reasons, but purely theological. So there are those who are, uh, we call them preterists, comes from a word that means past. And so they believe that all the books of the Bible written before 70 AD, and uh, that even the book of Revelation was all fulfilled uh, during that time rather than being a future thing. And so because of their, uh, it's a post-millennial theology, we'll get all into all that when we sum up eschatology in Revelation, but it's because of their theology that they have to say that all the epistles of John and the book of Revelation were written in advance uh, of the destruction of the temple. Uh, but the, the historical things that we have 
and the documents from the early fathers is that John died closer to the close of the century. And, um, and that actually agrees with the theology of um, John's epistles and uh, the book of Revelation. And so, so yeah, fun stuff. Um, the epistle is about fellowship with God and Christ and, uh, and, of course, his people. And they're about abiding in Christ and his word. Now, the epistles of John are dominated primarily by two concepts, uh, love and truth. And then, of course, the word light appears, especially in 1 John. But light is equivalent or synonymous with truth. Uh, as you read the statements about light, they're identical to the ones about truth. Um, now, John emphasizes five things regarding love. He says God is love. He talks about God's love for us, God's love in us. That's what we call the love of God. And then our love for God and our love for the brethren. Five things. And then he seems to unravel them in, 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 a, in a logical form. So John teaches that God's love for us generates the love of God in us, which causes us to reciprocate his love and to love those he loves, which is first the brethren and then the rest of humanity. So God's love then is what initiates, reciprocates, and perpetuates love. Doesn't he say that... Uh, we love God because he first loved us. That's right. So interesting stuff about love. John teaches that uh, the love of God is the product of regeneration. That if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit uh, residing in us, um, quickening us, as Peter would say, uh, that the love of God could not dwell there. It's a, it's a sign of salvation. He talks about the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us is that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4, 2. Um, and he describes God's love as both willing and ready to sacrifice for others. And then John concludes that if the love of God is not in us, um, that will cause us to love others sacrificially, he says, you're not saved. You're just not saved. And I, I think I've told this story before. I was at the fair uh, doing our outreach, and this lady and her daughter came to the booth, and and they were looking over our materials, and and um, and I had asked, I said, "Are you are you Christians?" And and she said, "Yes." And I said, "Oh, where do you attend fellowship?" She said, "Oh, we we don't attend fellowship, you know." And and she gave me her reasons, was because, you know, the church is filled with hypocrites and all this other stuff, and and so I said to her, I, I said, "Well, that's simple. It's, it's just because you're not saved." And I brought her to the Book of John, and I quoted passages to her, and I said, the, the love of God in us through salvation is what causes us to love his people, and you cannot love his people from a distance. Love is an action thing, and uh, she wasn't real happy with me, um, but as I've told other people, I'm not going to shy away from saying what the scriptures say, and if you don't love God's people, you are not saved. You're not born again. Uh, if you don't love people, you're not born again. Uh, the love of God by the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. So let's not play games with the truth. Amen? I said it gently to her, I think. I think I was gentle with her. So uh, John talks also much about truth. He talks about the spirit of truth. He talks about truth in us, truth known by us. 
uh, as well as truth possessing us, truth practiced by us, and truth as a reality or as a realm in which we think, act, and live. That's truth, okay? And then, of course, as I said, John speaks of light, which is synonymous of truth. He says God is light. Um, he also says God is love. But he says God is light, which, if we use that figure of speech, God is truth. Uh, he speaks of light in the same way as truth, as a reality and a realm, and light as something that we practice. Because it talks about walking in the light as he is in the light. And walking in the light means abiding in the truth, walking in truth, living according to truth. So love and truth, uh, John uh, holds up as the bedrock of, of the faith. Amen? And if anything, I think, is um, being attacked currently in our culture, it's that truth can even be known. That truth can even be known. And uh, the more that we engage with the culture, they believe in what's called moral relativism, uh, that uh, it might be true for you, but it may not be true for me. And, uh, and that's all fine as long as you don't, your truth doesn't conflict with my truth. And, uh, but that is only true in the realm of, uh, like Greg Kolka would say, your preference of ice cream. Uh, but when it comes to morals, they are objective, they're eternal, they're universal, and they're unchanging. Um, and, you know, when you get down to it with these people, uh, they have to defend their version of truth using our definition of truth. And so they, they live according to what we call the correspondence view of truth. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. And so they actually have to use our definition of truth to defend their position, which ends up bringing it back around. Theirs is absurd, and ours is the only tenable view of truth. It's very interesting uh, speaking to these people. Um, if you're interested in a read on it, Greg Kokel writes a book, uh, Moral Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. And it's written by Greg Kokel and Francis Beckwith, um, both very good authors, and are in the middle of the debate and stuff. But anyway, let's look at some, uh, some of the doctrinal contribution. Uh, John spends a great deal of time talking about the humanity of Christ against the docetism of Gnosticism. Um, good stuff. And then how it is that we know the truth. Okay, so let me talk about Gnosticism real quick which leads into docetism. Uh, you guys have probably heard the word uh, Gnostic, not an agnostic, who is someone who does not know if God exists or not. The alpha privative uh, of the word means without knowledge. Okay, So with A is without, not, uh, gnosis is knowledge, so they just don't know. But then this is Gnosticism, no A. Uh, these are people that believe that they know something. Uh, but they don't actually know it. It's very interesting. So this is also what pushes the date for John further toward the second century uh, because this doctrine wasn't developed to this degree that John addresses until much later than 70 AD. So that's one of the reasons we push the date later than that. So Gnosticism was a cult uh, that was essentially beginning to mature uh, toward the end of the first century. And it was based on this 
uh, special, secret, uh, you know, more like esoteric knowledge about God and the universe. Uh, they really didn't know anything, but as I said, they, they really thought they knew everything. Um, there were two kinds of Gnostics uh, in the late first century and into the second century. The, the first were the ascetics, and, uh, and no doubt this philosophy influenced the ascetic monks later on uh, in church history. And the ascetics, uh, they denied uh, carnal pleasure. So they lived, uh, they tried to live celibate uh, lives and uh, tried not to eat and enjoy good food and things like that. Uh, they were much like the, the Stoic philosophers. And, and this certainly impacted um, them. And then there was the licentious uh, Gnostics who took advantage of every carnal pleasure. And they were certainly influenced by the Epicurean philosophers. If you remember when Paul uh, was in Athens on the, the, um, the Areopagus, Mars Hill there, he encountered the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And uh, their philosophy was very similar um, to all, uh, to actually the, the Gnostics' philosophy was similar to theirs because it came first. But then there was something uh, very dangerous that was shared among all Gnostics, and that was that they denied the humanity of Christ. So others denied the deity of Christ, uh, but these guys denied the humanity of Christ, and that is called docetism. Docetism. Now, docetism comes from a Greek word that means apparition or phantom. So they were the phantomists. And um, so, yeah, they believed, and I've talked about this before, that if Jesus didn't have a body, but he, had an, he was in the form of an apparition, that if he was to walk down the beach, uh, there would be no footprints in the sand. And uh, so many ridiculous things like that that they would say. So John uh, took this rigid stance against the docetism of Gnosticism, saying things like, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus came in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. 1 John 4, 2 through 3. Not Antichrist himself, but the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, The spirit of Antichrist. Uh, John also confronted this in uh, his gospel. You remember there's this kind of mysterious beginning to his letter. You know, Matthew uh, gives a genealogy uh, from Joseph's side. Luke's gives a genealogy from Mary's side. Uh, Mark just kind of begins into the life of Jesus. Uh, but John begins before it all. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and uh, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that all creation was brought through the Word. He is hijacking a word and a concept from this philosophical group of people. And, uh, and he, he, he challenges it, saying that not only is the Word is, because they believe that the Word was kind of a... a um, a vibration that came off of God, but he affirms that the word is God, and then to deny their doctrine of docetism, in verse 14 of John 1, he says, the word became 
flesh. So, well, us as Westerners, we're like, what is all this word business? You know, well, John is addressing something late in the first century. He's challenging a heresy to say, yes, he is the word, but the word is God, and God was manifest in the flesh, as Paul says. Okay? Now, Paul wasn't, doesn't seem to be directly attacking Gnosticism. He's just preaching the truth about God becoming man. You know, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh, seen by angels, testified among the Gentiles and things. But John is, uh, he's attacking, you can tell. This is spirit of Antichrist, and he's really getting after it. So, uh, Also, um, as a counter to Gnosticism, John emphasizes knowing, okay, that same word in the Greek, gnosis, what is actually true, uh, or as we've said, the truth which actually corresponds with reality. Okay, not just affirmed truth, but actual truth that is livable. Okay? As uh, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he addresses the Eastern mind, which can affirm things but can't live by it. Same thing for uh, the Gnostics. And so identifying truth, especially as it's revealed to us through the Word, John gives nine tests. Uh, nine tests. Let me give them to you from John's letter here. He says, we know that we know him. So twice he uses the word. He says, if we keep his commandments, 1 John 2, 3. Now, the Gnostics, whether they were licentious or ascetic, they didn't keep his word because the Bible condemns licentiousness, but it also teaches that God has given us things in this life to enjoy, right? Yeah. Um, he says, we know that we are in him and that the love of God is perfected in us if we keep his word, 1 John 2, 5. He says, we know love, or rather we know what love is, true love, because he laid his life down for us, 1 John 3, 16. And that goes into his doctrine of love and the manifestation of sacrificial love in the life of the believer. He says, by this we know that we are of the truth, because we don't just love in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth, 1 John 3, 18 through 19. You know, if you're an, an, uh, 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 an ascetic Gnostic and people are suffering, what do you say to that? Well, that's a good thing. So why would you try to relieve their suffering? So John says, if you see your brother who's in destitute, and you say, and John addresses this, or James, and you say to him, be warmed, be filled, but you do not provide the necessary things for the body. Um, the ascetic might say, well, good for him. He's on his way to true knowledge. And, uh, but Christian love would, would motivate us to relieve the suffering of somebody created in the image of God. Um, He says, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 3, 24. This, uh, John, Paul also says something very similar, that um, our, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now he's, again, stating it as a theological truth. John is stating it as an apologetic against Gnosticism. Okay. Um, 
By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ, or rather, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God, 1 John 4, 2. Uh, so if you encounter information or a spirit that denies the human nature of Jesus, um, it's the spirit of Antichrist. It's a false spirit. By this we know God and know the spirit of truth. If we hear, and the word hear is, uh, means to heed, the teaching of the apostles, 1 John 4, 6. I think this is something that is uh, pertinent to the condition of the church today. If they do not heed the teaching of the apostles, John says they do not know God and they do not know the spirit of truth. Interesting, huh? Christians that are denying Christian truth is a problem. Is a problem. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit, 1 John 4, 13. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments, 1 John 5, 2. So I think John is just a little bit uh, committed to the truth. And um, I, I, forgot, I forgot to write the number down. I was telling Roger, I think the word alethe, um, truth, is recorded 110 times in the New Testament, and uh, over 40 of them are by John. So, yeah. so truth is absolutely essential to our faith. We can know the truth, and we can live by what it affirms. All right, well, let's look at these outlines. Um, first John, uh, Christ is the life, and John here in this uh, first part here the, the, of John, it's all about advancing in the light of God, divine light, walking in him, uh, conditions for it, chapter 1, the command about it to do it, chapter 2, 1 through 17, and then what it is, to con uh, the, the continuance in it, chapter 2, 18 through 21, and then... Um, attitude toward divine love. Remember, these are Geisler's. Uh, he has a way of, there's a name for the way that he does it, and I can't remember the name offhand. Does anybody know what that's called? What? Literation, okay. Um, attitude toward divine love, to dwell in him. Uh, salvation received through divine love, chapter 3, 1 through 9. Service rendered through divine love. Chapter 3, 10 through 24, steadfastness realized through divine love. Chapter 4, 1 through 21. Then there's the affinity with divine love, live in him. Chapter 5, there's the possession of divine life, corresponding with um, Peter's discussion that we have been partakers of the divine nature, and that because of that, certain uh, fruit should uh, be manifested in our lives. There's prayer and divine life, product of divine life, the fruit. Then 2 John, Christ is the truth, the path of truth. Make sure I didn't miss any notes. Um, then the introduction is grace and peace and truth and love, walking in truth and the command of truth. Now real quick, um, there's an interesting challenge with 2 John, and that's that, that, that it was addressed to the elect lady. 
and her children. So it comes up, well, who's the elect lady and her children? Uh, plenty of speculation. Some have assumed that John is writing to a literal woman and her children, and uh, even arriving at a name for her, uh, eklekte, because of the Greek word for elect. Okay? Uh, it's in the feminine. And uh, so they say, well, that's her name, apparently, eklekte. Uh, the normal word is eklektos. We are called the elect of God. And then others believe it's just a personification of the church and the children being those that attend. I think that's the most reasonable interpretation. Uh, and then verse 13, to make it even more fun, makes reference to uh, her sister. Now, I would say that that's probably just another church. Okay, And uh, not naming the church by name may have been uh, intentional to spare them from persecution during a time where the culture was hostile toward the faith. Uh, when, when the church is forced underground because of persecution, you have to be careful the way that you identify people and location. Otherwise, you are directing trouble their way if a letter is to be intercepted okay, by the wrong person. So it might just be in code just for the sake of protecting people. Uh, the rest of Second John... Um, peril of truth, it's laxity, verse 7 through 13. So it's exhorting believers about deceivers who deny the truth. It's a very interesting discussion. He talks about those um, who deny the Lord who bought them. Uh, I love bringing that passage up to uh, hardcore Calvinists because uh, they don't believe we can deny the Lord if we've been uh, received his atonement. Uh, but these people deny him and go into destruction eternally. Um, so that's kind of fun. Uh, rewarding believers for keeping the truth. Warning about transgressors of the truth. And then no hospitality for deniers of the truth. And people have kind of tripped up on this text. You know, don't bid them farewell, Godspeed, and, and that sort of thing. But Jesus says we're to love our, our enemies and, and, uh, and we're to reach out and preach the gospel. Well, this, the context is important here. These are people that have infiltrated the church, become a part of the church, and then begin to teach heresy. And uh, they're not to be welcomed, they're to be rejected. So don't trip up on that verse and go, well, see, we can't meet with Mormon missionaries or the Jehovah's Witness or whoever else. Uh, we do that, uh, but if somebody within our ranks here in the fellowship was to begin to teach a heresy, uh, Paul says the heretic gets his first warning if he does it again, he's kicked out of the church. Okay, So uh, that's it. And then he comes to his conclusion. And then 3 John. Uh, 3 John is a personal letter to a man named Gaius. Okay, uh, We don't know where Gaius lived. Okay, uh, The letter is intended to encourage him and let him know that John will be visiting wherever they are to correct a problem with leadership and uh, so it's an interesting letter. Three men are mentioned in this tiny little epistle. There's Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. Okay. So it's addressed to Gaius, uh, whom is this faithful brother. People have testified that he walks in the truth and in love. Uh, and John has apparently sent this letter to Gaius secretly because of this man named Diotrephes. Diotrephes is a problem. Uh, he was apparently... Uh, uh, the pastor or the, the most powerful leader in the church there, 
he says that Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence in the church to the exclusion of other leaders. Okay? Uh, he would not receive letters even from the apostle John or the people that he sent to the church there, but spoke maliciously about John, an apostle. Okay? And he kicked people out of the church for housing those who were sent by John. He's a tough guy. So John says that when he comes to town, he is going to be sure to meet with Diotrephes. <laughs> so anyway, and then there's uh, Demetrius, uh, who was essentially known, uh, I'm sorry, essentially who we know nothing about, but his testimony was known um, by those in Gaius's church. And his testimony and the truth was sound. And John and those in his fellowship were also familiar with this man's testimony. He's a special guy, but we don't know anything about him. Okay? We just don't know him. Uh, there's some assumptions that are made that he was the person that delivered the letter uh, to Gaius and that John is vouching for him, possibly. Uh, or he may be the guy that uh, John is planning on replacing uh, Diotrephes with, uh, kicking Diotrephes out of the church and installing Demetrius, who is a man of, of integrity and faith and love and the truth. I don't know, but um, apparently he was quite the guy. As far as the outline, uh, there's the confirmation of Gaius, uh, his love and the truth, the condemnation of uh, Diotrephes, who love not the truth, and there's commendation of Demetrius, who was loved by the truth, and then the conclusion. And there you have the epistles of John. Does anybody have any questions? We got, got a couple of minutes here. Yes, sir. Well, not much can be corkier out of place in John's epistles. <laughs> I was, I don't, can't remember which uh, scholar I was reading, but, you know, John is, he's the love apostle, you know. Uh, my professor of theology called him the love child. And, uh, and he is the love child toward the, the people. Um, but when it came to heresy, he remained as the son of thunder. And so... Um, I was telling Roger about there's a story in history from the early fathers of the church that uh, Serenthus, who was a heretic, uh, was uh, in a building that uh, John entered. And when John saw him, he told his companion they needed to get out of there quick lest the building fall in on him because of Serenthus. Uh, and um, so, yeah, he, uh, he was still robust when it came to the truth, was um, unwavering. But he was uh, tender toward the, the people of God. So, I have no greater joy, he says, than to find that my children are walking in the truth. So. All right. Well, let's stand up and pray. And We got Jude and Revelation. And then back to the Old Testament we go. I think we have to start in... Psalms. Yeah. So, not a bad place to start. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And um, 
Lord, I, I really love the balance in John's life. Uh, even though he, he doesn't come across as a scholar or a theologian, uh, he comes across as this very practical Christian who has, um, he's nailed it. Uh, it's all about love and truth. He loves the brethren. He loves the non-believer. Uh, but he has no tolerance for heresy uh, that would put the people of God in peril or lead unbelievers further astray. And Lord, we have much to learn that we can from him because we can be loving and tender and still be very firm and, and filled with conviction. And Lord, I think it's a very sweet um, example of someone that has truly walked in the light as you were in the light. And uh, Jesus was certainly that way. So Lord, work in us, we pray, by your Spirit, that the, the love of God would be manifest in us and the truth of God would convict us. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys. Lord bless you.